We turn to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2. A rendition, a report of Elijah's remarkable departure from the earthly realm into the heavenly and the spiritual. And the question raised by the prophet Elisha, who was not at this time yet a prophet, that would, of course, become one in the replacement, as a replacement of Elijah. And it came to pass when the Lord would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind, or if you will, a tornado, that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal, and Elijah said unto Elisha, Tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Bethel. And Elisha said unto him, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophet that were at Bethel came forth to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he said, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. And Elijah said unto him, unto him, Elisha, tarry here, I pray thee, for the Lord hath sent me to Jericho. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. So they came to Jericho. And the sons of the prophets that were at Jericho came to Elisha and said unto him, Knowest thou that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today? And he answered, Yea, I know it. Hold ye your peace. Now these sons of the prophets belong to what is called the school of prophets. And it wasn't so much that they were taught to prophesy as foretelling the future, but this was a way in which God was preserving his people in northern Israel. These were schools to teach them the scriptures that they had, the laws of Moses and so on, and some of that history. And then they would be able, these young men who were being taught these things could inform the people, the, the 7,000 uh, children of, people of God that were still left in northern Israel. So schools to teach them God's word in days of great apostasy they could uh, be a means for the preservation of the 7,000. Taking up now at verse 6, And Elijah said unto him, Terry, I pray thee here, for the Lord hath sent me to Jordan. And he said, As the Lord liveth, and as thy soul liveth, I will not leave thee. And they too went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood to view afar off, and they too stood by Jordan, and Elijah took his mantle and wrapped it together and smote the waters, and they were divided hither and thither, so that they too went over on dry ground. And it came to pass, when they were gone over, that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. And Elisha, Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. And he said, Thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. It came to pass that they still went on and talked, that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes, and rent them into pieces. He took up also the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and went back, and stood by the brink, the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, and smote the waters, and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elisha went over. And when the sons of the prophets, which were at, to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. They came to meet him, bowed themselves to the ground before him. And, he, and they said unto him, Behold, now there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee. And seek thy master, lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not sin. 
And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? Thus far the reading of the passage. In light of the reality of why I stand before you this morning rather than your own pastor, because he with family members has gone to visit a brother who approaches the time of his departure and death and crossing Jordan. This passage is probably more appropriate than I had first thought. As a retired pastor, I should say, in the preaching of this text was not when I was a retired pastor. The first occasion for preaching this text was just over 30 years ago when I was a pastor of Faith Protestant Reform Church and the death of a mother of seven, ages three through 18, following a surgical procedure and a blood clot that ran to her heart, leaving behind a husband, a widower, and seven children, three through 17. When is a mother more needed than when one has children from the ages of 3 to 17? Irreplaceable, wouldn't you say? And yet we as congregation at faith and that dear brother who was left as a widow, widower and his children had to deal with with it. We were in shock. And I was called upon to bring the word to somehow have comfort and hope. I turned to this passage on the first Lord's Day following her funeral. And I used this text. Not the same sermon though there will be similarities, of course, but this text. If ever a family needed a mother, one would think it when you have children from the ages of three through 17. If a nation and a people ever needed a prophet of God, with the boldness of Elijah, you would think it would have been the nation of northern Israel in the days of Jezebel and Ahab. And the Lord takes him from them. And that's what's behind Elisha's crying out, where is? And I'll use the word now because that's how I entitled the sermon when I preached it following the death of that mother leaving orphans and a widower behind. Where is now the Lord God of Elijah? We have all, as adults, I think, suffered loss in some shape or form. Maybe of family members. Maybe loss of health, some relative facing death as as the brother of your beloved pastor, maybe of friends due to controversy. That's painful too, isn't it? That strikes pretty close to home. And whose will is it? It may be for various reasons, disease or sin or what have you, but whose will is it? It's the will 
of the Lord God of Elijah the loved. And in that way we have to come to terms with these things. We turn to this passage not simply to ask the question, though the question is raised, because as we turn to the passage in the context is given the answer. And we want to look at the answer. We come to this passage not only because of the need, if you will, but because this Jehovah God is the one on whom we can rely. And that comes to evidence in this passage as well, why he is the God of hope when all other hope seems to fail and no other hope really is the answer and the remedy when all is said and done. The Lord is a Lord of mercy, beloved, but sometimes his mercy is well disguised. And one is inclined to say, if this be mercy, Lord, spare us and me thy displeasure and thy anger. But in this, beloved, we see a providence that is testing and trying and a cause of grief and sorrow, and yet embedded in it is a hope and in the end reason for a confidence. As Elisha cries out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, that was Elijah. But why was that Elijah? Because of the Lord God of Elijah, who was also the Lord God of a greater Elisha. You know what the meaning of the word Elisha is, right? God is salvation. Now think of Jesus, Jesus. Jehovah is salvation. And this one who cries out, Elisha, is the foreshadowing of that greater advocate and prophet and savior, representing Jehovah God himself. So with that in mind, my love, we turn to this passage and with the question beginning, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Considering the occasion for the cry, that God to whom we cry, and Elisha cried, and Jehovah's marvelous answer. Notice that though in the title, as you have it, all the letters are capitalized, that Lord is especially capitalized because you know in the King James, Lord capitalized is simply their uh, transliteration of the name of Jehovah itself. Jehovah's marvelous answer. The question that is posed by Elisha, where is the Lord God of Elijah, that is, where is Jehovah God of Elijah, whose very name means God is Jehovah. Where is Jehovah God of this Elijah is a cry from the heart. It is a bold cry. It is a challenging cry. With the boldness, the prophet Elisha, that is, he's going to become the prophet as he picks up Elijah's mantle, challenges Jehovah God to show himself. And to show himself according to his own name, I am Jehovah, I change not, which has to do with I am a God of promise. And when I make promises, I do not change my promises. I am faithful to my word and my promises. And Elisha is saying, if that is so, Jehovah God, I hold thee to thy word and show thyself as the God of promise, as a God of promise to thy people. 
as the Savior God and the loved that's boldness born out of faith of taking God at his own word and when believers take God at his own word they prevail upon him remember Jacob arms around the knees of the angel I will not let thee go angel of Jehovah and the Lord says you have in a sense overpowered me by your prevailing upon me holding me to my own word as I require of you Elisha cries out then in the name of Jehovah God show thyself in thy power as Jehovah God true to thy word but not only thy power but thy power governed by thy mercy by thy covenantal mercies and covenantal promises that is what I plead with thee to display and to demonstrate so this challenge if you will that's born of the boldness of holding God to his own word as the saving God and not a God who hath grown weary of us and decides simply I've had enough of you and I dispense with you and I will go elsewhere to find a people or if you will to my liking that's not my love Jehovah God so this bold cry of this youthful one who is to be this prophet where is the Lord God of Elijah it's a bold cry a love that comes from the heart it's a cry of course that has been occasioned by this astonishing manner in which Elijah has been taken into glory and the manner of his departure into glory was no ordinary way of departure soul being separated from body and one left with a corpse while the soul is gathered up into into glory but this is a manner in which this Elijah enters into glory vanishing from the earthly and the material into the heavenly and the spiritual bodily body and soul alive as witnessed by Elisha himself taken up by that whirlwind or who will that tornado in which appears these fire hard horses of fire harnessed evidently to a chariot of fire upon which very possibly Elijah mounted stood and was swept away that's the occasion but in a word Elijah has ascended up into heaven in this astonishing fashion he's taken up and vanishes from Elisha's sight that Elijah was taken into glory bodily of course is validated by scripture in a very in various ways more than one way it's validated in the first place of course by the passage in context itself because you read of those 50 young men of the prophets standing on one side of Jordan and seeing Elijah and Elisha vanish into the distance over the horizon but not so long after they have passed from from sight comes down this tornado this funnel cloud which they are able to see and they realize it's right on track following Elijah and Elisha where they have vanished from their sight and they can see the lightning they can hear the thunder they know as a powerful tornado and usually tornadoes of course when they come with such can be the visitations of death and they wonder if having caught up Elijah and Elisha they have both perished in that tornado and they wait for a time and after time one figure comes back and they realize as the figure draws not it's not Elijah it is Elisha alone and he crosses Jordan in that wonderful fashion and they ask him where is Elijah and he informs them he was taken from me bodily into heaven and he vanished into the spiritual realm and they were skeptical how can we be sure that it happened as you think it happened 
and they prevail upon him and they go and they scour the area. They investigate. And it's not just a man or two goes and looks around the vicinity for a time, but 50 of the young men go. And they don't simply spend a few hours or a day scouring the area. They spend three whole days canvassing the whole of that area until they are finally satisfied there is no body to be found. He was not simply picked up and then spit out, cast off to be broken upon some mountain or laying with a corpse in some valley. It must be, as Elisha said, he went from one realm to another and was taken bodily alive into the spiritual realm. That's the one verification, but it's validated, as you know, in the New Testament Gospel by another event. The children can tell you what that event is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples have fallen asleep, three of them, and they wake up and there's light about them and they see with Christ Jesus as he is only months away from the cross and must face the horror of that cross and being abandoned by his own father on the cross. He's been visited by two men from heaven, one being Moses, who was also taken bodily into heaven, only he was taken bodily into heaven after he died. Read Jude chapter, uh, verse 7. He's buried in a sepulcher this side of Jordan, and they could not find his body. And Jude, verse 7, tells us that Michael and the archangel and the devil contested over the body of Moses and Michael said the Lord rebuked thee and took the body into glory and in glory before the eyes of the saints already there he's raised from the dead bodily they see the bodily resurrection while they are in glory a prefiguration of their own bodily resurrection which would come by the power of course of the promised Lord and Savior Christ Jesus but also with Moses is Elijah, who was there because he also was taken bodily into, into heaven, glorified, and now they too come to Christ Jesus, Mount Transfiguration, to encourage him to face what he had to face if even they would have the right to everlasting glory and righteousness and eternal life. So validated by the New Testament gospel itself, this ascension into heaven, if you will, and being translated from the earthly and the physical or the material into the heavenly and the spiritual. So that's the occasion for the cry of Elisha, this dramatic fashion in which Elijah is taken into glory, one to which not even Christ Jesus Ascension can compare as far as, you might say, drama. Christ Jesus floated up into the air, which is rather impressive when all is said and done, but he simply floats up into the air, if you recall the time of his ascension before the gaping mouths of the disciples, and then he vanishes as the clouds come to receive him. But Elijah goes with a roar. Uh, that tornado which comes with a roar and the kicking of the, of the dust and the lightning flashing and the thunder rumbling and the chariot of fire and the horses of fire harnessed and then being carried up as the funnel disappears into the, into the heavenlies. A spectacular display which from an outward point of view not even Christ's ascension can compare if you will. But here now is... Elisha, and Elijah has been taken from him in this dramatic, splendid fashion. And one might think that, that Elisha, as he sees the one whom he loves so dearly, taken into glory, would have said, praise the Lord, hallelujah, happy day, my loved one is in glory, and no more trials, and no more tests, and no more tears, and no more life being threatened by that wretched Jezebel with her useless husband Ahab, but all of those tests and trials and afflictions and sorrows and griefs are past. Isn't that reason for joy and happiness? Why the tears? 
Why the tears? Loved ones taken to glory, beloved. Let's rejoice and be happy. Don't have to be sad, do we? Where's the, why the grief? Because there's an emotion here. He rips his clothes. He rips them in half. That's a sign of grief. Right down the middle of his being, I feel ripped in half, almost a broken man. My father, my father, you can hear the pathos. My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Grief and sorrow and a feeling almost of being abandoned and his loved ones in glory. What's there to be sad about? The world observes us, beloved, when a loved one is taken, perhaps in dramatic fashion. One thing with an aging parent dies, there's a certain grief and sorrow, but better that he or she has gone in their old, their old age and be delivered from this and this, but one is taken in the middle of life, a husband, a mother from children, one is shocked, or one's own children. That's happened too many a time. My father-in-law can tell you about that. He had two children taken in their teenage years by various what we call accidents. And the deep, deep grief left behind. The world has an answer, you know. You're fooling yourselves. You say you believe in heaven. You talk about glory. But deep down, you know there is no such place. We at least are honest with ourselves. We know death is the end. And so, of course, there's the, the howls and the, and the grief and we're staggered and can hardly go on for a while because we know this is simply the end and the bitter end. But you won't acknowledge it. And yet, deep down, you really know. And so there is this grief that almost paralyzes one. And hardly, one can hardly go on for a time one step in front of one step. If you really thought there was glory and your loved one was still alive, certainly you wouldn't respond in that fashion. Would you? And you know, often we do. Unbelief. No, beloved. That's not the sign of unbelief. That the believer really deep down knows there's not another realm. And the end is the end and the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. Beloved, consider Elisha. Elisha has this deep grief in which he feels ripped in half because he doubted where Elijah was. He didn't doubt where Elijah was. He knew where Elijah was. He saw him vanish from one realm to the other. There was no doubt in his mind as he said to those men who came back, didn't I tell you? Why did you waste your time? He's in glory. I told you. Now let's go on. And yet he has this grief. What's the reason? Love, beloved. Love. And the deeper the love, if you will, the deeper the grief when a beloved one is taken from one because even as believers, it is the end of a certain fellowship and a joy that the other has brought to our life and we know it may not be for eternity but is for a time and we will miss that one for that time the depth of the love I remember well not so many years back talking to a father about my age whose son had been taken from them with cancer leaving a family and uh, wife and a mother behind and the depth of his grief as a father and my going to speak to him and he's weeping and he says reverend I must not have much faith he says I have this deep deep sorrow and I can't stop thinking about it and I had to say to him Jim that was his name no it's not a matter of unbelief lack of faith it's the depth of your love you know what he meant to you as a Christian, as a fellow believer, and to the family as well. Now, we must go on knowing the Lord knows how to take care of his own. 
And that comes out, out in the passage as well. There's always a word of caution, beloved, when we have this matter of grief due to death or loss. Lest it overwhelm us and we say, I'm going to resign from life. The one whom I loved is gone. I can't go on. I won't go on. The Lord has dealt with me so severely. I'm simply going to resign from life and simply eat the bitter tears of my, my grief. And that's it. Because I have no one to live for. About that time a pastor has to say to such a person, you're a Christian and you have no one to live for? Who died for you? Who lives right now? What has he done for you and the loved one who is in glory? I think he's worth living for yet, don't you? You must continue to live for him and for the body of Christ that remains to you. And that was Elisha. That's a striking thing, you know. He cries out, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof, and he reaches down to pick up that mantle and does what? Heads deeper into the wilderness to find a juniper tree and descend into the juniper tree and says, I'm done, Lord. You've taken from me the one who's my spiritual father. Why even go on? And look what Israel's true of Israel, too. They still continue in the way of apostasy. I'm done. I give up. That wasn't Elisha, was he? He picks up the mantle of Elijah, has ripped his clothes in sorrow and grief, broken, if you will, and heads back to the promised land, to the Israel of God that's waiting for him there. To do what? To minister to that people in whatever way he can, praying that the Lord will even use him as a replacement of Elijah if the Lord so will. But he heads back for the people of God to have fellowship with them and praying to be of use to them as the Lord will use him. He had beloved. His father is gone, if you will, but he had reason to live and those to live for, did he not? He realizes that and he heads back to Israel with that mantle. He has cried out, my father, my father, the horsemen of Israel and the chariot thereof. Notice the figure. Why the figure? It's a militaristic figure, of course, and a militaristic figure of a king who has chariots and horses, not simply as transportation about a city. A king has chariots and horses as a defense of the nation to protect the people of the nation, to keep away the invader, and in the days of northern Israel, even to keep away Syrians who would come down to take simple, simple, uh, uh, small portions of the people to lead them into in slavery and to enslave them as bond servants. You know, that's why the little girl was in the house of Naaman, the, the, the Syrian, the leper. She was a little Jewish girl. She had been taken and protected somehow and brought into the land of the, of the heathen. But the chariot of the king and the horsemen were there so he could as best possible preserve, defend the people of the nation from such bondage, from such enslavement, and from death, if you will. But notice, that's Elijah, not simply one of the chariots, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Meaning, as far as Elisha concerns, is concerned, you can pretty much take the chariots and horses of Ahab and dismiss them, because that's not in the end what God's people ultimately need, these fleshly horses and metal chariots and soldiers on the back of the, uh, uh, mounted on the chariots. What God's Israel needs is one who carried the word of the Lord and would be used by the Lord to defend his people from the power of sin and from Satan and to keep them from spiritual captivity and falling into sins and being chastised for their falling into sins as they became bond servants for a time to those sins, enslaved if you will. And now Elijah has been taken, don't you see? The chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. And so this cry goes up. Who, Lord, who, Lord, is not going to defend thy Israel? They've been given a spiritual freedom, but who's going to preserve that spiritual freedom and that life and keep them from the power of temptation, from becoming overcome by the, the evil one, even loose in the nation, to idolatry and who knows what? 
Thou hast taken Elijah. Almost appears as if he is irreplaceable. He's the one thou hast used. He's gone. Thy people need him. Why? Not simply because he's Elijah. That's not Elijah's cry. Elisha's cry. Very significant, beloved, is Elisha's cry. He doesn't say, uh, in the question, where is Elijah? When he gets to the river, the Jordan, he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Elijah's can come and go, beloved. Apostle Paul's can come and go. The preservation in the New Testament church didn't depend upon the apostles remaining alive and alive and alive. Nor did the Reformation church depend upon Calvin remaining alive and alive and alive. Could be used. Luther. Kuiper. Hooksma, I don't care who you name. The Lord may use such. But the preservation of the church doesn't depend on any one man. Be he Elijah. Where is the Lord God of Elijah? Elijah as the means of the speaking of the word and God revealing himself, making himself known and working as the Lord God by his word and spirit. That's Elisha's concern, isn't it? And so the cry goes up. Where thou hast taken Elijah from us as the vehicle of thy word? Is he irreplaceable, Lord? as the vehicle of thy word, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Show thyself and be it thy will. Use even me to whom the mantle of Elijah has fallen. And he slaps the water, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But now the question, why attaching the name of Jehovah God to the name of Elijah. What is there about Elijah that brings home the truth of who Jehovah God is? Beloved, you have to know a little bit of your Bible history. As adults, you know that as children, young people, you have. That's one of the benefits of a faithful Church of Christ. They teach us our Bible history. And when you teach Bible history, you teach truths concerning Jehovah God and who the Jehovah God of the church is. And it was taught through Elijah. That God of, Je of Elijah, beloved, is sovereign, that's true. But he's sovereign from the point of view of election. And election is not simply a doctrine that's Calvinistic and we can adhere to the doctrine and we can refute the Arminians and remain orthodox. That's wonderful. But the truth of election has to do with love. God's everlasting love. Notice I say everlasting. Because election does not only have to do with the origin of our salvation and the source and the power of our salvation, but it ties in with the preservation of our salvation as well. So you have Ephesians chapter 1 according as he hath chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him. In love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. A people who are precious to him. And if a people are precious to him, then the words of Christ stand. None are able to pluck them from my Father's hand. Whatever the test and the trial, my Father will preserve them because you are known to him in his love. And I am the revelation of how exceedingly great he has loved you. And Elisha knew that with respect to God through Elijah because don't forget the reason that Elijah was still a prophet in Israel is because he tried to resign the office, if you recall, on Mount Horeb under the juniper tree first, and I'm done, and the Lord sends me to Horeb, and he says, oh no, you're not done, Elijah. Get your body back to that nation. 
I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. They are my 7,000. I intend to keep them. And you're the man I intend to keep them by, by your word. Now get back there to labor. They are mine and I will keep them. Election, beloved. Love, precious to me. And I will not let them go. And you're not going to resign, Elijah, till I decide you're done with your life. They are that precious to me. First, and that's what we must remember, the preciousness of God's people and his love. Those who are taken, those who are left behind. But along with that electing love is that the God of Elijah showed himself to be a God of great power. Not simply that we love someone and we see them dying and there's nothing we can do for them. However deep is our love for them, our own children, we give our own life for them and they are taken perhaps to glory anyway. A love that does not have ultimate power. But there is the love of one who has ultimate power. And that's the God of Elijah, isn't it? And he displayed that through Elijah with the fire that consumed the sacrifice on the Mount Carmel, if you recall, licking up the dust and the water itself in the sacrifice, revealed when he runs before the storm as it comes with the rain and the thunder and the, and the lightning. And as well, we read from 2 Kings 2. Read chapter 1 of 2 Kings when the fire comes down from heaven and destroys two captains with their fifties who came to silence Elijah, if you recall, to arrest him, to remove his witness from the, the nation. And God said, oh no, I am the God of Elijah and with fire I will silence you and keep, I will defend my people from the enemy and preserve them come what may with my power, using Elijah, but displaying his mighty power through Elijah. If I be the one whom you say, he says to the captain and the Lord, and let the Lord take you away, and he does. He defends his people with his power, you see, to preserve. So the God of mighty power showing himself through Elijah. But there's also a gentleness. The God of Elijah has almighty power, and he may display that in awesome fashion. But it is striking how gentle, patient, if you will, the Lord God of Elijah can be with his people with Elijah himself, who was going to resign under the juniper tree. And it's interesting how Elijah talked to Jehovah God under the juniper tree. I'm going to say in a rather cheeky fashion. What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very jealous. No, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, slain thy prophets, with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I feel sorry for myself. I'm the only one left. I've done all I can, Lord, implying, what have you done? I've been very jealous, Lord. I'm expecting this or that. I don't see it. Who's failed? Not me, Lord, implying, maybe the Lord has. And what does the Lord do? <clears throat> You young piece of dust, I simply sweep you away. Who are you to speak thus to me? No, he bears with Elijah, sends him to Mount Horeb, comes with the powerful displays, and then as a breeze, because Elijah says that again in the face of Mount Horeb, the Lord is patient with him in his discouragement as a father and gives him encouragement to go on again in his love and in his mercy. That's Jehovah God, beloved, with us too, in our grief and sorrow. Who knows what comes out of our mouths? But he's patient. He's understanding. He may reprove and rebuke, but he keeps us to himself as his own. And one more incident lifted from the life of Elijah. Much to the point. As the drought falls and the stream dries up, Elijah heads north to the widow of Zarephath. And she is at the point of starvation with her little boy. And Elijah goes to that home and the flower fails not. And the oil fails not. As Elijah is present in that Gentile home, a widow who has lost her husband 
and faces death. And a little boy dies, unbeknownst, unprepared as Elijah is, and he takes a little boy up into the room. And he cries himself out to Jehovah God, what, why, Lord, why, Lord? And the Lord restores the life of that little one. And he puts the little one back into the hands, arms of his, his mother. And she says, this is a token indeed that the Lord does not view me simply as a Gentile and holds my idolatrous past against me, but has embraced me and included me in his covenantal mercies, the God of providence, and every day anew, beloved. She opened the cupboard, and there was the flour, and there was the oil. I call it the oil of grace, the cupboard of grace, if you will, day by day. That's the Lord God of Elijah, you see, as he cares for his people, left without a mother, left without a father. Who will care for them, Lord God? I will, day by day. My name is Jehovah. I have never failed my people yet, and I will not begin now. And so this cry goes up concerning the Lord God of Elijah that thou, Lord, will show thyself once again and not fail us. Show, demonstrate, Lord, that that is, that, is, that is so. So the cry goes up, and the questions are three. Did he show himself? Has he shown himself? Does he show himself? Did, has, does. He did. The passage, read the passage. The mantle is there at his feet. Remember, Elijah says, Elijah said, what do you want? I would seek a double portion of thy spirit, not to be double the man you are, but the portion of the firstborn, that what the Lord gave you, he will give me. And Elijah said, I can't give that myself, but if you see me taken up, then be sure the Lord will give you that. Well, Elijah is taken up before the face of Elisha, and the mantle is there, the mantle of Elijah. And Elijah takes that mantle, Elisha does, and he goes to the river Jordan, now the mantle is a wonderful thing. In my judgment, it represents the word of God. In all this book between the black covers, it's as the mantle of Elijah, beloved. We have been left with the mantle of Elijah. But for salvation, we need more than the mantle of Elijah. Between the covers of a book, written in a book, the word of God. Because if all you have is the word of God, it's simply condemnation, condemnation, condemnation. Someone must empower the word of God to save. So he takes the mantle of Elijah and he says, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Do I have his spirit? And he slaps the water and the water divides. And the 50 sons of the prophet says, the spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha. In other words, the word has returned not simply to condemn us, the word has returned with a saving power to save us because the spirit must use the word if it's going to be effectual and here it is and by this word because it is the Lord God of Elijah if you will working by his spirit be saved and preserved so he did according to the history of the account and Elisha in a certain sense, comes back from the dead. Elijah comes back from the dead. He crosses Jordan. That's a picture of death. He, almost like the resurrection of Jesus goes across the Jordan, the resurrection from the dead. Here I am. And the Lord will continue to minister to his people, you see, in northern Israel. So from that point of view, this cry is heard. He did. As he. In the end, of course, Elijah could not save. Elijah could not save. It must be Christ Jesus in the end. Because in the end, Elisha dies. Now, Jehovah God, who will care for thy people? All the prophets, one by one, die. Where is one who will endure? And you have Jehovah's salvation, Jesus, Jehovah's salvation himself coming. And arising from the dead and ascending up into heaven. I said, you know, and that from some points of view, Christ's ascension couldn't compare with respect to the spectacular to Elijah's because Elijah went up with a roar and Christ simply floated up. 
But in the end, you know, Christ Jesus' ascension was more glorious and wonderful than Elijah's because Elijah had to be carried up into heaven. He couldn't take himself into heaven. He had to be carried by a chariot in a wind. Elisha, Jehovah God, Jesus, beloved, went up by his own power. He simply said to gravity, you will serve me. And he floats upward, not down. He floats upward. That's his power by his own will and his own word. He doesn't have to be carried into heaven by another. He himself is the power by which he carries himself into heaven, if you will. But he's in heaven. What good is he there? I am with you always. I ascend to heaven that I might pour out my Holy Spirit, don't you see? That you might have my word by my Holy Spirit until I've gathered all my own. The faithfulness of Jehovah God, beloved as the Jehovah God of not simply Elijah and Elisha, but of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord, the ascended one who is coming again. But meantime, we have his Holy Spirit to give his word power to preserve and to encourage. So he did answer that question, did Jehovah God, and he has answered that question, did Jehovah God, and he does, even as we live and walk, beloved. I saw that with my own eyes and experience that the Novorlope family, from whom the family of the Lord took a mother of seven, was marvelously preserved, the seven of them, by means of Christ, his spirit, and the use of the church and development of the church herself used by Christ to marry, to have children, one of whom is my own son-in-law, by the way, but the marvelous preservation of the Lord to replace the seemingly irreplaceable. The beloved, the Lord knows how to replace even the seemingly irreplaceable when he comes by his spirit and his word, and he comes in the name of Jesus, who was far more glorious than either Elijah and Elisha, because he endures forever, and he, beloved, knows how to keep his own unto everlasting salvation. Amen. For thy word we give thee thanks, for the ascended Lord Jesus, for his remembering us, and the gift of his Holy Spirit. May he work by his word and spirit to preserve us to everlasting life and to encourage us in this valley of tears, in the shadow of death, fear no evil, knowing he is with us, and the end, we have the victory. In Jesus' name we